We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way, and I, 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 I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 183 weeks into two weeks to flatten the curve. Before we get started today, I would like to thank all of our listeners for taking the time to sit down and give our podcast a listen. If you find this podcast interesting, if you would like to support our work, then click the link in the program description below, and it will take you over to our subscription page. Subscriptions start at just $5 per month. With that being said, thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside Melissa from Cutting Through the Matrix. Melissa, how are you? I'm well, Johnny. How are you doing? Um, well... <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to repeat all of that. Um, but yeah, I'm. I, I'm a little tired. I, I'm just. I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm a little tired, but that's okay because well, we're here and it is the start of a new week. It is your once a fortnight, and I suppose I would like to talk about the things that you kind of laid out beforehand. I, I do want to go down that road, uh, but before we do that. Every year, and we kind of skipped it this year because we just kind of lost track of days. Uh, mostly that was my fault because I just wasn't paying attention. But every year we normally talk about uh, September 11th and what everybody was actually doing on that day. And I, I mean, that's one of those days you just you don't forget. You, you just don't you don't easily let that kind of stuff go. I remember exactly what I was doing that day, and I'm sure that you do too, and everyone else does. I've pretty much told my story year after year, and I, I guess I'll just be, uh, I'll, I'll be brief about it, and I'll let you get to your, um, to, to what you were doing that day. I was 18 years old at the time, if you can believe that, and <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I was 18 at one point in time, and I was, I was working at, uh, at a, an electronics store in a shopping mall. I was working at a Radio Shack. Do you remember those places? You know the places. You oh yeah, little, little gadget. That was stores? back yeah. when people could actually, you know, repair small. Yep things for yep. themselves and they sold transformers and gadgets yep, and stuff right. like that. That's right. I was the little punk kid that was standing in there that was that would sell you all that stuff and I would hope to sell it to you because I'd want the commission off of it. So <laughs> that that was me. But I remember that day I had woken up. I had to go in first thing in the morning that day and I got up and I, I hadn't even turned the TV on or anything. And this is this is long before smartphones or anything like that. So I had no way of, of really knowing the internet was kind of just getting the ball rolling out of the, uh, you know, the text style internet and everything was was kind of just moving out of the uh, the dial up era. And so I, I didn't really take a look at the news or anything. I wasn't really paying attention. And I had, I had gotten in the car and I got to the uh, the mall. And when I got there, I kind of off in the distance, I could see my store and I would, you know, we had these these glass 
uh, walls and, and glass doors up there so you could see through and into everything in the showroom. And we had all these televisions that were up there. I don't know if you remember walking into the stores, you had TVs right when you walked in and, and they had, usually it was everything on the same channel. And I recall that there were so many people that were crammed into the front of the store that I couldn't get in. I had to kind of like work my way in and push past everybody. And I saw all these people in there staring at the TVs. And I, this is before I even looked up the televisions to find out what was going on. I thought we were just busy. And I noticed as I got past all the people, I noticed that there wasn't anyone at the uh, the cash registers. There was no one checking anything, anybody out. And I thought, what in the world's going on? And so I asked one of the guys, I said, what, what's, what's the problem? And he pointed up the television. He says, look, this is when the first tower had been, had been hit. This is like 8.30 in the morning. I recall... After that, like we we didn't do anything that day. The only thing that we did was we sold radios. We were mm. the only place in the mall that had either televisions outside of Sears. If you remember Sears, of course, Sears isn't there anymore. Sears was the only place mm -hmm. where you could buy a house in a box for 30000 and have it delivered to you. <laughs> but we had televisions. And so we had the, the the people stopping in all day with the you know, security people and everything else. We had every single radio that was in that store we sold. And I think we sold out of them by noon. And it wasn't the people that were just your average everyday customers. These were other workers from other stores throughout the mall. They all came to us with purchase orders or with cash and bought all the radios we had. We, we sold anything that would pick up a signal. We were selling portable TVs uh, and everything for people to watch what was going on. As I said, the smartphone thing didn't exist. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't an option. But I remember that's pretty much what I was doing that day was that. And, and I remember watching everything unfold. And by, I want to say around 3.30, 3.34 o'clock, we got calls saying that everything was closing. You know, it was one of those where everybody's, all right, go home, be with your families kind of thing. And by the time I had, uh, I had gotten home that evening, everybody that I was friends with at the time, they all came over to my place. And we were all watching it on on television. That's when the uh, that's you know that's when the tower started to fall. When that happened, then the other panic ensued, which was you need to go fill your cars up. And so all of mm -hmm. us jumped in the cars. We went to all the gas stations in town. Every gas station in town was sold out. And so we got word through the old analog phones. Right, we were calling each other to find out. We sent everybody everywhere. One gas station outside of town was the only one just off of uh, one of the highways. And so we drove all the way out there and we waited in line for, I think, an hour and a half on the freeway because the, the line was so long to get gas. But that was um, that was my day. You know, in in short, that was my day. Let me let me ask you a couple of questions. Were you yeah, sure. living at at home with your folks at the time, or you, did you have your own place? I was living at home with my folks at time at that time. Yeah, I was eighteen, so I was just. What, what did I was your family think? Well, everything was it was treated as a, a Pearl Harbor kind of thing. You know, I had a mm -hmm. I had family members. I had grand uh, grandfather that was in World War II, and so everything was geared around that. And then we were it, it was. I'll put it this way. It was expected by the next day. You know, I was asked by military family members, when are you leaving kind of thing? Mm -hmm. At that time, you know, I was 18 years old and, and everybody, you know, there were so many people that were lined up at the recruiting stations the next day, just like Pearl Harbor. There were so many people lined up at recruiting stations that you couldn't you couldn't get in. I was the only one at the time that was thinking, we don't even know what really happened. We, we don't know the backstories of anything, just what we're being told. And this is the knee jerk reaction. I should go 
off to war somewhere. I didn't mm -hmm. like the sound of that. I, I did not mm -hmm. like the sound of that. It seemed like at the time I was the only one that was kind of halfway thinking and everyone else was in like this reactionary mode. Mm -hmm. And so the atmosphere that that I got from my family and it's 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 been that way almost ever since is has been like this reactionary kind of thing. And I, I remember at the time I was, you know, about six months to a year after that, I was I was criticizing the policy of what we were doing. You know, the uh, the George Bush policy of, uh, well, we're going into Iraq. Well, what did Iraq have to do with it? Well, we're going into Afghanistan. OK, well, why? Because supposedly a, a guy named Osama bin Laden with 100 of his friends live in caves there. So we have to invade mm -hmm. the entire country. Mm -hmm. And I got I remember I got snapped at time and again because I was criticizing what we were actually doing as if I was too young and I didn't know what I was talking about. But I was but yet mm -hmm. I was I was expected through I guess, <laughs> hereditary pressure. I'll, I'll put it that way. Right. I was expected to all of a sudden throw everything that I wanted to do out the window. And I was expected to do everything that they expected me to do, that they wanted me to do. And I thought that's yeah. no that's no real way to live because you're you become someone that lives for someone else's ambitions and someone else's goals, not your own. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't like the sound of that. I, I didn't like the idea of that. That's what I got. That's the the reaction that I got, and that's that's what I had to deal with for for many many years. That's very interesting. Um, so that you just weren't doing your part, basically. More or less, that's that's kind of the feeling that I was uh, that I was given was yeah that. Interesting. Well, anyway, what were you doing that day? How did your day go? Well. I'm not going to tell you how old I was that day. <laughs> what, I know, I, you don't have to tell me because I know how old you were. You were, tw you were 29 that day. Uh, so nice. I was working in Los Angeles at a small agency, and it was early in the morning, and my I, I got a phone call. I'm not... I actually don't remember if I was in bed or just kind of waking up with a cup of coffee. But it was my boss who was saying, have you seen the news? And I I said, no, I don't have the television on. I wasn't a news watcher anyway. And he said he was just really upset. He said that we've we've been attacked by terrorists. Turn on the television and don't come to work. And I'm not sure what else he said, but I turned on the television and it was, you know, it was just over and over that psychic driving <laughs> yeah. of the images. Yeah. And I, I, I think I just watched it probably like everybody else, you know, and just watch those images over and over. One thing that was really interesting to me, though, is that I had a friend who represented a journalist and uh, she represented him for other types of writing that he did. But I, I am trying to remember the timing. When when did the U.S. actually send with the boots on the ground into Afghanistan? Do you know that date? I can pull it really quickly. Well, the thing is, is that it seems to me in that time, you know, it just kind of runs together in a mush and it's been a long time now. But I remember her telling me that she was helping him get some stuff together because he was going over to basically to be an embedded journalist. And to me, in my recollection, it feels that 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 was two or three days after the towers came down, if not faster. I mean, almost immediately, this journalist, he was a funny fellow. I remember that he used to describe his beat, he said, my beat is the stands. <laughs> you know? 
So, you know, he Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, he covered the stands and he was off. And so here, the interesting thing was, is that my friend told me and she, she was a single woman. She said, I'm going with him now. I know that she was, you know, she represented him and they were good friends. And I said, well, why on earth would you want to do that? And she said, well, it's an adventure. So she went with him. It's an adventure, huh? Uh, Well, Mm -hmm. to answer your question, uh, October 7th is when we went into Afghanistan officially. That was when we hit the ground there. And it was a troop buildup from then until December of that year. Mm, he, He was there much earlier than, you know. He, I don't know who he was embedded with or if he was just going to go and get ready to be embedded, but he, he was there like lightning fast after the attacks, after the event. You know, we did have people in there and I, I've been recently, I've been reading into a lot of that time period of our involvement and we, we've been involved in there with guys like uh, Brzez, Zbigniew Brzezinski and he was uh, working with Mujahideen back in, in the day with Osama bin Laden against uh, against the Soviets and, and all that stuff uh, mm-hmm. under the Carter administration. So mm-hmm. we had been in there for decades prior to, but uh, again, I'm still, the research that I'm doing into what happened with Afghanistan from the time that the Russians left to the time that we went in there. I'm still looking into that and I'm I'm still I'm still kind of tied down with with other things at the moment. But I'm I'm looking for militarily speaking and strategically speaking, I, I'm looking for reasons as to why that was. And I think I might be on to something, but I don't want to give too much away just yet. Well don't um, forget, Johnny, that you know we we sometimes just think about Okay, the Russians were there and then we were there and, you know, but don't forget that the British were over there. Yep, that's true. A long, long time ago. That is true. Yes, they were there long before that. That is that is true. Yeah. So I I think it's uh, there are I think there are a lot of strategic reasons why empires want to be there. I also think that just due to the the land there and the mentality of the people, they're more nomadic. I, I don't think it's a conquerable area of the world. And so I'm not really sure that empires have been trying to conquer it. And I think that 9-11 was, um, it was just uh, the official reason for going over there for strategic and resource reasons. Remember all of those images of the U.S. soldiers guarding the poppy fields? Oh, yes. Yeah. Opium production (laughs) increased Uh, by, what was it, 97%. And I remember Geraldo Rivera did a a report on that. It was one of the, uh, I think, the Army colonel or something. He says, oh, yeah, we we load it all onto the planes. We load the heroin onto the planes and and we ship it out for them. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah. th- there are other reasons for that. Um, I, I fully agree. But I think there was more to it. Uh, and I, I have this clip. You've probably heard this clip before, but I'm going to play it. Mm-hmm. This is General Wesley Clark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, th- you're telling me, you're telling me from what this this man with this decorated career, you're going to tell me uh, that uh-huh. what he says here years before is wrong. Mm-hmm. Listen to this. Mm-hmm. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and 
and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz, I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, you, we've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. We never made it to Syria. The Obama administration with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, they tried. They tried to get rid of Bashar al-Assad and it didn't work. They got rid of Gaddafi and they got rid of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. But as far as, um, uh, what's his name, um, Bashar al-Assad was concerned, they didn't get rid of him and we didn't do anything against Iran. But I did hear around, I want to say 2000 and... 2006, 2007, that was actually in the cards. That was one of the things that was actually discussed in one of the uh, Bilderberg agenda meetings mm -hmm. at one, on one of their agendas in that in one of their Bilderberg meetings. But it never came to be. And I, I don't know why. Well, I don't think they uh, well, I mean, we're not done over there. But that's, you know, Alan Watt used to talk about that clip, that clip on an on, on awful lot and the Pro PNAC project for New American Century. And that group doesn't exist as such, but you still find the key players, those who are still alive, the, you know, neoconservatives or whatever label we're going to stick on them. This agenda you find throughout organizations such as the Council on Foreign Relations. Now I've dived into the Aspen Institute and their security arm and how involved they are in geopolitics. So uh, you know, I, I think that they're, they have a really simple motto, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again, that they, you know, an agenda is an agenda and they'll, they'll find an excuse for going in there. I don't think we're done with Syria and we're certainly not done with Iran. That's for sure. No, it is the uh, uh, it is the if if you're a hammer, every problem's a nail kind of thing that he was uh, he was referring to. Mm -hmm. So that's what you it know, turns into. On the the Redux that I put up on Sunday, I w I had certain things in mind. I was thinking about social media and the total control of the media and how we are given information, how we arrive at what we think are our conclusions. And I chose a talk, uh, one of the longer talks that, that Alan gave in 2020, and I pieced together basically two segments from a four-hour talk. 
I really wasn't thinking at the moment that I chose that about 9-11 coming up. That went up on what they, the 10th of September. But one of the things that Alan talked about in this segment that I chose, he talked about Bill Cooper. And he was talking about Bill Cooper telling people about how socialism will always use a big event like a, a an attack or, you know, some kind of crisis, a huge, a, you know, where you're the people think that their world is falling down around them. And what Bill Cooper was driving at is the technique here is fear. They're using fear and they terrorize you so that you will comply and accept what your the experts and the politicians are telling you has to be done. So I put that up, but then I was thinking more about Bill Cooper, and it's just interesting. I think a lot of people may not know who he was because he was killed in November of 2001, but he, for years and years and years, talked about various aspects of this agenda, and he famously called it on 9-11 on, I think it was the 28th of June of 2001 on his broadcast, he said, we will shortly be having an attack. There will be some kind of an attack on us and it is going to be blamed on Osama bin Laden. Don't you believe it? That's pretty prescient. It is, and I, I was I was referencing to you in uh, in prep. Um, again, this is something that I've done in my own research. This was actually part of the same book. We were talking about seismic weapons uh, in, in in sound check before we started, and this same individual uh, that wrote this book, the same GRU defector, he said in the 1990s to our debriefers, he says, if there ever comes a time in, in the 90s, he says this, he says, if there ever comes a time when you see a nuclear bomb go off in an American city and they say it was done by Arab terrorists, don't believe it. He said, because it'll be my people that are actually behind it. Now, 9-11 was not a nuclear bomb going off, but the narrative is close enough. It might as well have been a nuclear bomb, in my opinion, because that's what we treated it like. Well, uh, the psychological effects and what they've been able to achieve agenda-wise, yeah, it uh, it was an explosion from which there is no recovery. That, mm-hmm. that is um, something that Alan famously said over and over and over was, he said, 9-11 was the kickoff. What did he mean? Because he's, you know, well, he would he would elaborate in different ways. But basically what he was going, what he said is this event, this Pearl Harbor event allows them to bring in total surveillance, total compliance. This is the event that really ushers in socialism or communism or public, you know, fascism at the top with communism for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. We we got the Patriot Act out of that. Mm hmm. That's and right. the Patriot Act. The, and, and for those wondering, uh, we also got the, uh, and I've railed against them time and again for so many years now, we got the Department of Homeland Security, who 
have not caught a single terrorist since their existence. They were created to, quote, catch terrorists, and they haven't found any other than the ones that they've manufactured from like this January 6th stuff. That's all they've been able to do is that the reason you get your rights violated at the airport is because of the Patriot Act. That's Mm -hmm. why that happens. You're telling me that they had all of those airport scanners already ready to roll out because why? You're telling me that they were ready to go in airports less than a month later. You couldn't have built them that fast. They had them sitting in a warehouse ready to go. That Patriot Act was sitting in a drawer ready to be passed whenever something big happened. They had already written it. If that bill had been proposed, given the the nature of people's mindset at the time, obviously it's a lot different now, but given the mindset of where people were at the time and where Congress was at the time, I highly doubt that it would have passed without 9-11 happening. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also incremental, though. I, I mean, you're absolutely right that there had to be that event to push it through Congress. But under Clinton, there was this was prior to uh, and uh, before I get it wrong, it was either I believe that it was the Oklahoma bombing that allowed Clinton to push through an omnibus terror crime bill that, you know, nobody would have. And and that laid the groundwork for the Patriot Act. In Canada, Alan described there, uh, this was under Alan Rock, but there, uh, and I don't have the year on this, but I think it was the late 90s. There was an omnibus crime bill. Now, a lot of this had to do with domestic crime and how crimes are prosecuted, et cetera, et cetera. But in these huge, massive bills, they always get in just that all they need is that little paragraph here or there where if you study it, you go, oh, yeah, that's me and my rights. And that is how it's done. It's always by little increments, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. They just need a little bit here and a little bit there. And, you know, I I think and just kind of I I don't want to fast forward too much because it's a a great conversation, you know, given the time period. But uh, if you fast forward to COVID, that gave them the rest of the powers that they didn't have before. Technology in the early 2000s would not have allowed them to do the types of things that they did during COVID. It just didn't exist. The social media right. didn't exist. The right. smartphones didn't exist. You you couldn't push information to people like you did. You couldn't have pushed a single message. You could not have monopolized people's perception the way they did under COVID in 2001. Just wouldn't have happened. I remember they tried to do that. Do you remember the swine flu thing under Obama in 2008? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. They tried to do a lot of this stuff under COVID then. As far as mm-hmm. like the restrictions, not so much the um, uh, the QR codes because people didn't know what QR codes were at the time, but mm-hmm. they tried to do this back then and the technology still wasn't there. I think had the technology that we have now been available in 2008, they would have tried it then, but it just didn't work. And we had the same outcome. Uh, they tried the same thing with the vaccines and, you know, the jabs and everything else. They tried to do the same type of push. But well, again, it just wasn't available. It's funny that you mention this because in the redux that uh, that I put up on Sunday, Alan talked about exactly that, Johnny. He said they had to wait the 10 years. You've got this 2000, what was, I think it was re- really 2009 into 2010, that winter. Yeah. He, he said it was a total misfire, uh, a, a, you know, a manufactured pandemic, couldn't get it off the ground. Uh, so they have to go back to the drawing board. But 
when I made the little video to illustrate that redux, I found footage of Anthony Fauci talking at that time about the vaccines, about the protocol, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's like the worst kind of deja vu that you can possibly imagine. But you're right. They did need all of the technology that they've now made ubiquitous and they needed to have um, the people being so willing to give up their privacy and share the data. All of all of this wasn't there in 2009. It just wasn't there. It certainly wasn't there in 2001 because you're describing working at Radio Shack when nobody had a smartphone. But the other thing, when you started to talk about 9-11 and and then segued into COVID, we're talking about how they had these bills ready that, you know, the Patriot Act is ready to go. It's all ready to go. Or I'm talking about just remembering that a journalist that I knew was sent over to Afghanistan before the soldiers arrived and was waiting there when they arrived there. You had well, to have somebody ready with the news cameras when the planes touched down, right? So that's you had to have right. somebody there before. That's right. And this is going to be very, very controversial. But you do recall the four dancing Israelis. Oh, my goodness. I have seen so many postings of that the last few days of the, <laughs> the four dancing Israelis. And I've, yeah. I've just kind of, OK, you know, <laughs> it's there. Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, who knows? We live in an age in which anything can be manufactured, something that can be completely made up to generate uh, amusement, hate, outrage, shock, whatever. Is it real? I don't know. But they did say, we're here to document the event. But what I was going to say about COVID and having things ready is, I mean, come on, seriously. This is just thinking about Tony Fauci on this clip from 2009. He's telling people, first of all, he's generating for the vaccine. He's generating hype and a sense of urgency. Well, where he said it's clear that we will not have enough vaccines. Right. So people, oh, they're going to rush out and go, I got to get it. I got to get it. I've got to be first in line for it because the man said there won't be enough. But at COVID, they had as soon as it happened. They somehow know who's going to manufacture the vaccines. The technology that we've been told is experimental. This is experimental, experimental. It's not, uh, you know, it's emergency authorization. But it was all ready to go. Just like the scanners in the airports. They yep. were already like, there. Yep. They were That's ready right. to go. That's so right. They, they already had those vials in the refrigerators. Yes. Before all this, you're you're telling me Operation Warp Speed. Give me a break. You're telling me yeah. that yeah. you developed something in less than what, what was it like three three months? I don't ninety days. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. One of our yeah. own guys has spent years in the vaccine development industry, and he said, "No, there's no way." They don't have this. He he worked as part of the Operation Warp Speed as in like the mechanism of it, going from laboratory to laboratory, taking samples here, taking samples there. He says they've already got one. No, I don't think so. He said that on this podcast time and again. Mm-hmm. No, it's well, I mean, that was another I this may have originated with Bill Cooper. But he said that socialism is good for people who are, you know, for children, for people, for adults who want to, you know, to remain as children, for people, I should say, who want to remain as children, because 
you know, somebody's making all the decisions for you. You don't have to think, you just have to show up, you know, all it, all it asks in exchange is that you give up all of your rights and freedoms and comply, comply, comply. And, and this is something that Alan elaborated on a lot and really painted a very detailed picture of how our minds are shaped and we're guided into this state of eternal childhood. But only a child can believe that, oh, those scanners were just there and ready to go. So that the moment that those Twin Towers came down, that anytime you went to an airport, you were going to be scanned. You know, all of these protocols are in place. Only a child would believe the official explanation of what we were given around Operation COVID. It's the same thing with um, with COVID passports. Well, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you need that to go to gain access somewhere. Mm-hmm. Why would you even consent to that? Do you remember the, um, I, I don't know if they did this down where, where you are in, in Texas or not, but did they put the little arrows and markers on the floors in oh, stores? Oh, of course they did, did that they in Canada. They, all the, uh, yeah, yeah they, in Canada, yeah, I knew they yeah. did. Oh, that's right. You were in yeah. Canada for part of it. Yeah. Uh, well, as as far as I know, they did it. And I, I mean, I, I wasn't actually physically here, so I don't know. Yeah. I just made an assumption, well, but I, I think it was. Oh, yeah, they did it here too. Wide. Everywhere yeah. in all the stores. Some some places they actually still have them. They're just, they, did, they just never pulled them up. Mm-hmm. But when you're a child and you're going through school and you're learning things, quote, learning things. I need to be very careful now about all that. What do you see? You see the same thing. You see markings on the floor about where you're supposed to go and where you're not supposed to go. Mm-hmm. It's the same concept. So well, you remember, I don't I don't know, Johnny, if you know this, but the whole social distancing came from a, a high school girl's homework paper whose father just happened to work for, uh, what's that, New Mexico, um, the biggie, the big lab in New Mexico. Well, anyway, it's military, military, industrial. But her father worked there, and oh, I see. I thought her father was a was an advisor to Bush or something. Well, he might have been an advisor to Bush, but he was. It's military industrial complex. He was Ah, stationed in New Mexico, and he helped his daughter with the computer modeling of her ridiculous homework assignment. Uh, That's where we got social distancing. Los Alamos. Los Alamos. Okay, yeah, I I had heard that uh, that her father was uh, an advisor to uh, to George W. Bush, and it was. I did hear about the fact that it was her term paper. Or, or something like yeah. that, that, yeah. that they came up with this? Well, I, th- I think he had been employed at Los Alamos for, for a while, but... Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the, the point is, is that you that socialism is here. We are under it. We have been for a long time. The idea or a type, like I said, you've got this perfect blending so that you've got the public-private partnerships at the top. You've got fascism and underneath it you have whatever you want to call it but it is a type of socialism and it has required decades of scientific indoctrination to bring people around to first of all being so thoroughly brainwashed that they still believe that they have freedom so thoroughly brainwashed that they can't see that there's something above this the left right paradigm of politics. And this allows, you know, all manner of things to happen. But it is, it's really this childlike willingness to trust, trust the experts. I I was talking to Neil Foster for the real history that I'm going to post tomorrow. And 
he was talking about COVID. The interesting thing about the psychology of people, he said, remember that right before this happened, people, they had lost all trust in the media and had for years because you've got, remember, especially in the U.S., you've got Trump and the elections and the 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 what happened to the elections were they stolen were they not you you know you've got all of this stuff that happened either right before covid or during it that people are just disgusted and yet the same people who were disgusted with what the media is telling them, disgusted by their politicians, are the same people who turn around and say, well, the government said that we should. And so therefore, I'm going to go and, you know, do what they tell me to do. They were the first I, ones to roll I, their sleeves up. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to give too many details on this, but someone I know was corresponding with someone that he knew that had he had talked to them in many years and he just wanted to catch up and they were saying oh you know it's terrible i got covid again i just don't know how that happened i've had six vaccines here's your sign i'm (laughs) i'm just gonna throw that out there it's incredible i i remember to your point there uh, about what you said about people's behavior and how they they changed i remember when it all began, at least in in the European side of things, and everybody started to get that element of panic, right? Because the the media mm-hmm. started to to hype everything up. And these are people that that I was talking to at the time that were just saying, "Oh, look at all these idiots out there panicking and and doing this and doing that and listening to whatever's uh, the media's hyping up." And then not a month later, they were all wearing masks, waiting for a vaccine. Mm-hmm. It was incredible to watch the flipping of it, to actually see it. And it's like, wait a minute, a few weeks ago, I mean, the the, the rebellious streak in me was saying, OK, I'm just going to do the opposite of whatever these idiots on TV are telling me to do. Right. That's just common sense at this point. And mm-hmm. I'm expecting everybody else to kind of follow suit, especially the ones that were saying the hell with all this this hype and this hysteria. I'm just not going to be a part of it. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, um, I got turned on to the out group somehow really quickly. Mm-hmm. Overnight. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm looking at, at doctors and paramedics and and nurses and just general health professionals. And I'm thinking to myself, you're supposed to know better than this to see things, to, to observe things, to make a diagnosis of what you're seeing to practice medicine. That's your profession. That's what you do. And you can't see this. You're following along with the, the hype and the hysteria. Well, I think it was the redux from the week before last I had heard from someone that I communicate with in South Africa. I've done a few real histories with Darren in South Africa. And he had sent me a little audio recording about the last time that you and I spoke. He said, I was listening to the the dynamic independence with you and Johnny. And you were talking about just musing how in real time they can change a person's position or, you know, how, how does that work? And you and I, when we were talking about this two weeks ago, we were talking about technology being used. And Darren's response was that he thought that it was, it was actually a biochemical component that this is built into humans. He said he's seen it since he was a child, where on the playground, and they, when he he mentioned a game, I think it's called Rock and Robin, but he said you could just see the people playing their games on the playground, children, 
and they just silently communicate with one another. They all seem to know because what what Darren was saying was that he was always odd man out or odd boy out. He he didn't fit in, and he said that. Well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but what he was saying is that there there is a silent communication between people, and he thinks that technology can speed this process along. It can make it happen perhaps globally more quickly, you know, so that around the world people are adapting and doing the same thing within days or hours or minutes because of technology. Yeah. That's really interesting. But he and said he I said I can imagine how subtly it could be used too. Yes. And he said it's like a like seeing a flock of birds. And then he drove to to your point. Well, he, before I get to your point, he said that what happens with this group dynamic is that the person who is outside that, who doesn't adapt immediately, who who doesn't seem to have a part in their biochemistry that just knows, okay, the group is doing this, I'm doing that, because it's completely unconscious. He said it makes the, the individual that isn't conforming actually become invisible to the group. They don't even notice you because you're not in sync with them. But to your point, he said about the doctors and the medical professionals who just complied and went along, he's basically saying that they are no different, that the training, the intellect, the logic, all of the things that say the individual or the non-compliant who's on the outside looking and, and scratching their head over this conformity because they have the same biochemical responses. So that the doctor who who might have said at the very beginning, oh, well, you know, and, and exhibiting some signs of thinking for themselves, oh, well, this is, this is not how we practice medicine. This is not logical. This isn't protocol or whatever. When the group has that effect, those doctors and professionals, they're carried along and it is really instant. It's that's, it's that's so quick. It's yeah. That is interesting, and I, I mean, I, I I think about now how I could apply that into situations that I've dealt with um, since I guess since my childhood. If there's an explanation for it, maybe if the, I, I don't know, I've, I've never actually heard that before. But when you put it into that context, it it does make sense. I can't imagine anyone would ever any science person would ever give that any any thought because it just you know flies in the face of what they believe is science. Well, what the hell science these days, right? Mm -hmm. So scientism. Scienti yeah, it's scientism. It's it's whatever you're paid to write and whatever everybody else agrees in or agrees with, you know, the peer well, it's review. It's a religion. It's a superstition. It's not science as, you know, it's a superstition. It's scientism. It could be it could be voodoo. There's nothing to back it up. No. But but I cannot explain I'm, I'm not. Of course, I'm not saying that that is a um, uh, an explanation, but I cannot explain the change that I saw in people. As somebody who who studied human behavior for the better part of almost 13 years now, personally observing it and making decisions based on on other people's actions, I don't have an explanation. Me personally, I, I just don't. I know there's several ways that you could look at it, and that being one of them that you just described there. But I don't have any way that I can I can justify it to myself as to what happened and will continue to happen to people because you know they're going to do this again. Oh, they yeah. did it once. They're going to do it again. They're trying to resurrect this dead horse now. I don't think it's going to work as, as well as it did the first time, but they're going to do it again and they're going to turn the heat up. Mm -hmm. And I cannot 
again, I cannot explain the change I saw in people. And it has baffled me. It has absolutely well, baffled if you, me. Well, if you have time, listen to the first part of that uh, the I will. Redux. I'll send, I'll send you the link. It's in the first, say, 10 or 12 minutes of the Redux that I pasted in the Darren's audio where he talked about you and I having that conversation a couple of weeks ago and his response to it. And I, it is interesting because there is something... See, I always go back to... Uh, Alan's idea about free will and conscience and the individual knowing right and wrong that that is that is built into you and not really giving people an out for being hypnotized, you know, not not really this whole mess formation or mass formation psychosis or whatever I go. No, 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 no. Everybody's got free will. But when you're talking about what Darren posits here with a biochemical reaction or response that just happens in nature. So how do birds know to move in a flock at exactly the same pattern instantly? And then they just instantly switch and fly in a different direction. Where does that come from? And seeing it apply to humans, you're you're seeing that coupled with what Alan would describe as scientific indoctrination that is nearly perfect, nearly perfected. You see, Alan's whole book, the title of the book is waiting, his second book is waiting for the miracle. But he would often talk about when an individual starts to break through into reality, that is the original miracle. That is a miracle. Because scientific indoctrination that we have lived under for so long is it's really it's perfected. And that's what we see in people. That's what we see people that we think are sane and logical and bright and can see things. They're under total mind control. Yeah, I you know, I had and I'll I'll be I'll be very candid when I say this. Honestly, I'd love to see your reaction when I tell you what I'm about to tell you. I had I had <laughs> okay. dinner last week. This is a fairly intelligent individual, very nice person. And as we're sitting there having just casual conversation across the table kind of thing, waiting for our food to arrive, I'm thinking to myself in the back of my head, this person doesn't know anything. Yeah. They don't. And I'm just kind of casually just smiling and, and trying not to not to be um, outright offensive and just snap and say, you know what? You don't know anything, <laughs> but I'm I'm doing my best because you and it's this is this is the worst part because when you hit reality as you're you're talking about you you kind of break through everything and you you have that moment where you smack reality in the face and you can see things and you understand things and you can think as the individual you learn or you I guess maybe by default when when you start to have a conversation with someone who thinks that they know everything. I, I don't know. I guess there's no other way to put it. And you find out through conversation, subtle conversation, because you don't want to be too direct. You find out through subtle conversation just how much they don't know about reality and how they're caught up in all these, you know, different false narratives in this like this dream world that they've they've been handed. You tend to just get to a point where you don't say anything. Like I'm, I feel like I'm driven to that. I feel like I don't want to say anything because you feel like if you say something, then you're calling them stupid. Does that make sense? And oh, so you, yeah, you just you just tend not to speak. And so well, then everybody kind of just looks at you like, oh, well, you don't talk much, do you? Well, no, I don't, because I'll tell you everything you don't want to hear. You mm -hmm. know, I'll turn your world upside down if you want to listen, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it disrupts their their little bubble <laughs> that they you know their little comfort bubble that they live in. Well, it's I mean there's there's several things at play there. The the first is the knowledge of reality has to be an individual journey. I was just thinking this morning of an illustration that Alan made on a, a series of talks that he did with Jackie Petru uh, years ago. And it's so elegant. I wish I had the book in front of me that is essentially the transcript of that. But so lovely the way that he describes this process. It's a, a little chick inside an egg. And the chick has to get out of the egg all by itself. It takes its little beak and just pecks and pecks away at the egg shell until it breaks through. See, that is the only way that someone really comes into reality if, is if they do it themselves. Can there be teachers out there? Can there be people who speak words that are wise and true? Yes, absolutely. Can the little chick hear some of that through the shell and then want to just break all the more furiously with their beak to get through? Yes, absolutely. So what I'm saying is that in the appropriate forum, that is what we do. We talk and we share and we try to say this is true. But to do that in a situation where you're having dinner with someone that you kind of assess is sound asleep there in the land of Nod TV reality, that's just unkind. It's cruel. And it it's is. not helpful. <laughs> you know, you uh, will elicit those, anger or. Yes. Yes. And I, I, that's it's one of those things where you just, you know, what, you don't want to have that conversation over a meal kind of thing. So you just kind of nod and go along with it and just kind of affirm whatever they're saying and say, yeah, yeah it's, it's all crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it, it's it's one of the, the reasons why you either spend more time trying to seek out like-minded individuals so that you can have the communication that you crave, or you learn to live inside your own head, as Alan often advised people to do. Because the alternative, he would say, is you're just going through the motions of polite conversation. And that is not satisfying. It's just empty. It is. And I feel, again, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to sound rude or, or cold hearted here, but I feel like when I'm in that situation, I feel like I'm just wasting my time. Yes. And that's, that's a terrible thing. I, I don't like to be rude to people. You know, I'm a pretty nice person and I, I don't, I don't like to just say, oh, sorry, I don't have time to talk to you anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not that kind of, because that, that in and of itself is rude. I like to have conversations with people where I know they want to have a real conversation. If somebody yes. wants to have a real conversation and they start to ask real questions about things, then that's where it gets really interesting and it really it gets really thought provoking mm -hmm. is is when that happens. But it's it's what you said earlier. People have to want to do that. It takes months of I, I don't want to say a, a for lack of a better term, I don't want to say a debriefing process. But that's more or less what you're going to go through with somebody that wants to find things out is you're going to have to have these long, in-depth conversations about the world, you know, get their take on it, you know, g give your perspective on things, go back and forth about the ideas that you're both throwing out there and see if you can come to a solution. But if you're caught up in the day to day of, 
oh, well, this party said this, or that party said that, or this group said that, or this person said that. You're not going to get anywhere. You're never going to find out what's going on. You're never going to find the truth. You're just going to be stuck in that perpetual cycle. And guess what you're going to be doing the next time? You're going to be rolling your sleeve up again, <laughs> getting COVID for the ninth, 10th, 11th time. Yeah, yeah it's Splashing true. your QR yeah. code with your four masks on at the supermarket to get a loaf of bread. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it, it is tragic, but... Honestly, Johnny, this is another, uh, this is straight from Alan Watts' mouth, but this is, this is truth. He said, sadly, we're in a, a war that has been raging for a long, long time, and you can't stop on the battlefield. Now that, and that would be trying to deprogram somebody one-on-one -on -one that has expressed no real interest and you're just hammering or the way that people will describe they you know try to wake up their wife or their husband or their parents or whatever he said you th this isn't a long war and what you're looking at there with people who don't know or who don't want to know or who want to argue or who can't see it they are casualties of this war. And you think of yourself, you give yourself that visual image that you're out on a battlefield and you're trying to get from the trench over to the other side or whatever, and you've got bullets flying all around and you're very vulnerable. If you stop to try to pick up someone or aid someone who's already been gunned down, this is the person you can, you know, what are they? The person who's still in left-right politics or who's going in for their fourth vaccination or whatever. If you stop for them, you make yourself a target. You have to keep moving. And so, I don't know. That sounds kind of cold, no, but that's the it reality. Does. It does. But you're, you're absolutely right, though. And I, I've, I've told myself that, maybe not exactly like that, but I've told myself, again, not to sound cold-hearted, but I, I repeat it in my head. Whenever I run into a situation, I'm like, I don't have time for this, you know, and I have mm -hmm. to move on. I just I have to just pick up and, and go. What softened the coldness of that directive from Alan for me, what softens that is that he said time and again, everybody, but everybody with no exception, regardless of where they are in the world or in time, everybody has an opportunity or a series of opportunities to know truth. But they make a choice or a series of choices not to know. Because knowing brings with it responsibility. Because knowing brings with it the immediate catapult into adulthood, personal responsibility. I'm the one here. I'm my champion, right? I'm my own hero. I am no longer waiting for somebody to fix this mess for me. A lot of people, that's why, again, back to Bill Cooper and then Alan saying, people will love the, well, Aldous Huxley said it, people will come to love their servitude. This is the truth of socialism is it's known that there's something safe and comforting when mommy and daddy are looking after you and supplying you with experts and all of the answers. When you've got to suss it out for yourself, so to speak, it's painful. And so what Alan is describing is people know that. They unconsciously know that if they open Pandora's box and look at reality head on, their comfy, cozy life will never be that again. And they make that choice. Therefore, 
knowing that everybody around you, and that's people that you love. That might be your mother and your father, or your sister, your brother, your husband, your wife, your children. They make a choice not to know. And you've got to leave them with that choice because to do otherwise makes you the control freak. I was reading um, Seneca. You know who Seneca was? He was mm, the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've actually got Seneca by the bed. <laughs> Interesting. I was I was yeah. reading his and I was listening to you talk there and I, I, was, I can't help but think of what I was reading the other day. Uh, and I was mm-hmm. reading his take on the shortness of insight. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how in the second century, right? So the fall of Rome, he said you could see people were so busy as in they were they were preoccupied. They had other things on their mind. They didn't have time to pay attention to what was going on. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to pay attention. So you have a, a situation where people aren't alive. That's Again, maybe that sounds cold, but people aren't alive. And he goes on to explain how to live is to be alive to the truth. Yes. And if you don't do that, if you're too preoccupied with your, I don't know, your ambitions and your career and, and this and that, then you disregard the truth. You don't take an account of your reality. If you go down those lines, if you deny the truth, then you're not... Again, you're not taking account of reality. You're not taking account of your associations. You're not paying attention to what's going on in your country, your neighborhood, your home. You're not paying attention to yourself. You don't know your true self. All of that is, is centered around your the fact that you just you don't know the reality of the, of the world. What you're describing, what Seneca wrote about, what you're describing is a long-known and ancient, what you might call an esoteric truth. This is what Jesus meant when he said, let the dead bury their dead. You are alive to the truth. You are enlivened by the truth or you're dead to reality. And it's, it is that simple. This is ancient wisdom. I can't think of a better place to leave it. It's, uh, it's been a great conversation. <laughs> I know you said that you've got a new podcast with uh, Neil Foster coming out. Um, and I obviously, I don't want you to give any more away of that because I want people to go and listen to it. Is there anything else you've been working on on the website that you'd like to talk about before you get away? Uh, I, I, I've had a, 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 a live mind, like a, a just a mind on fire the last 24 hours or so because... I've had some really cool ideas about new things to do with Alan's material, and some of it is listener-inspired. So probably the next time we talk in a couple of weeks, this will have formed into a new series that I, I want to do. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. Uh, yeah, so there's always, a bit, basically, I'll have more ideas than, than I've got the life to bring to fruition. But there's such a wealth of knowledge with Alan's work that... You know, I think I think when you're on, you're, you're absolutely right. I think when you're on the next time, I'm going to go back. I'm going to get this clip, or maybe you have it. Maybe we can get together via email and we can get that clip. But uh, there was a, um, I think you called it a blurb. You know, the little yes. the little audio clip yeah. of uh-huh. Alan talking about Maurice Strong and ah. his involvement in a lot of what's happened up to this point, as far as you know, his everything that he did with like the the climate thing and the UN and mm-hmm. um, with China, collaborations with China and his business and dealings in the public, US. public private privatization yes. of yes. Yeah. Um, so I would I would like to talk about that, and I would like to to throw Bill Gates into the mix because I believe that Bill Gates is. Are you, you'd like Maurice to throw him into the shoot. mix? I'd like to throw him yeah. under the bus. <laughs> oh, I'd like to throw him under a whole fleet of buses. Yeah, that's true. Or off a cliff. <laughs> yeah, something. Um, yeah. But I think I I truly think looking at what Maurice Strong did, 
I think business-wise, public-private partnership and collaborations with uh, with China and and everything, mm-hmm. I I believe that Bill Gates is filling Maurice Strong's position, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, that's so, it. Yeah. Maybe we can Makes go over sense. that next time. So uh, I'd to love to. I, I, I look forward to it. All right, sounds good. We will see you in two weeks. Again, that is Melissa from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. I encourage all of our listeners to get over there and take a look at the treasure trove of information where they maintain the life to collect the works of the late, great Alan Watt. Also, her podcast is Real History with Melissa. It is available everywhere podcasts are sold. That'll do it for us for today. Melissa, I'd like to thank you for being here today. Thank you to all of the listeners. God bless everyone. Have a great evening. 